welcome to the Good Intent, Good Impact podcast, where every week we discuss concepts that can help us dismantle white supremacy in American society. And today we're going to discuss the hegemonic and normalizing aspect of the web of oppression as featured in Teachings for Diversity and Social Justice, the third edition. This feature of the web goes hand in hand with the pervasive nature of oppression, which we discussed earlier in the series. So as we talk about hegemonic and normalizing, I just want to start with what does that even mean? Um, Because those can feel like very academic terms. And so I just want to break that down. Hegemonic and normalizing really only means the status quo. It means business as usual. It means what we would expect in terms of behavior from people in the spaces that we're around. And when it comes to white supremacy and white identity, these are considered the normal way to be. Um, How white people think, act, exist in space is what's considered normal for everybody else. And those of us who are not white are expected to operate very similar to how white people do in order to be seen and taken seriously. The big problem with that is that it creates a lot of emotional labor and by extension, racial battle fatigue for black and brown people who frankly, we have cultures that are very different than the white norms and identities that we see walking around every day. Um, And so one very clear cut example that I wanna talk through in the podcast is whiteness in the workplace. This is somewhere where you can see where white expectations, norms, ways of being, ways of thinking, ways of speaking, ways of dressing, all of that stuff show up um, for us as black and brown people in a way where we have to acquiesce to that, not just to fit in, but in order to survive. And so, as you know, I like to use the power of storytelling to really bring these points home when I'm talking about um, examples of how the web of oppression shows up. And so again, I'm gonna use myself as an example. I cannot tell you how many times I have been tone policed by white people and other black people, mind you, okay? That's how real this is. Other black people have tone policed me and said, you need to be mindful of how you say certain things because you don't want to get on so-and-so's wrong side. And I'm thinking to myself, did I use inappropriate language in this work setting? No. Did I call anybody out of their name in this setting? No. I was just very forthright, very assertive, and maybe code switched a little bit to the west side of Chicago part of me, which is really just using a different vernacular of English. It's not, it's just, it's not anything that's inherently bad, except that you as my supervisor telling me it's bad inherently makes it that way, which leads to, you don't sound white enough, you need to pivot, otherwise people are going to, you know, hold you accountable and essentially punish you for that. Um, And so I have had that happen to me more times than I can care to count. Um, Another example where I have had this happen to me, and I know so many other black women have had it happen to them as well, is even policing our our facial expressions. So saying something like, people can read your emotions on your face and you should be mindful of that again because you don't want to make 
so-and-so upset with you or feel like you're not really engaged in the conversation or any number of ridiculous things that a supervisor will say to you um, to try to make you feel like you need to be somebody or not, all the way down to whether or not you smile enough or you're frowning too much or you're rolling your eyes because that's what they thought they saw. There are so many ways that people of color, particularly black women, are policed in what we say, what we look like, what we wear, how our hair is. And if it's not in close enough proximity to whiteness, you can almost guarantee that there's going to be some sort of consequence. So when we think about the larger mistakes that people are making, when it comes to the hegemonic and normalizing aspects of whiteness. And again, I'm gonna, I'm gonna keep this in the workplace because I think this is the best way to bring home these examples. We take these things for granted, or at least white people do, I shouldn't say we, white people take these things for granted and don't really examine you know, where this comes from or why they've been adopted as being the solution or the answer or the right way to be. And there are some black and brown people who have internalized this as well and will punish other black and brown people for not fitting this mold. Again, this has happened to me in the past, so I know firsthand that this can happen. Um, when there are pushback um, from people of color around certain topics, if you're talking about you know, someone who micro-invalidated you and you're assertive in your opinion and you push back, you often find that you're being accused of things like not being a team player. So again, it's not only just not allowing black and brown folks to be who they are naturally, it's the weaponization of whiteness and the penalties that go along with not being seen as close enough to whiteness to fit in. And if you're a black and brown person, this can literally mean your livelihood. Like this can literally cost you your job, which is why I said at the end of the video, a white person really doesn't have to learn about anybody else or how they think or operate or move or groove or navigate in these spaces because whiteness reigns supreme in these spaces. Because they are white, because they've grown up with white norms and culture, which are very similar to other white people in other places, it feels very natural to them. And on the flip side, for those of us who aren't white, it's like trying to navigate this insane jungle of crap um, that you go through just to be able to make a living every single day. And it's really, really tiresome and it's really exhausting. If you're interested in looking up some of the tenets of white supremacy in the workplace to kind of help you, you know, think through and give some verbiage and language around it, I strongly suggest looking up, um, you know, Tenets of Whiteness in the Workplace by Okun, and that's O-K-U-N. Um, it's laid out beautifully there. Um, so if that interests you, definitely go take a look at that resource. Um, and that might, you know, be a first step as a solution for you of trying to deal with this and dismantle this, especially if you're a black person trying to bring this to white people's attention, because when there's like legit theory or theoretical foundations behind what you're saying, I find that they stop and take it a little bit more seriously than if it was just you expressing your feelings. So that's one way to start thinking about solutions when it comes to dealing um, with this issue. The second piece of it is you have to think about what kind of environment you're in. You know where you work, right? And you know your livelihood is on the line. 
So you really have to think about, is this a place where I think that if I really challenged this, that my job is still going to be safe? If the answer to that question is no, then that should be your cue that you probably need to start finding employment elsewhere. Um, because if you know it's more likely than not that you're going to be penalized for like sharing the, the model of tenant, white tenant, uh, white supremacy in the workplace and the tenants of that, if you even, you know, suggest the website and they're like, why are you suggesting this? This is not happening here. And you get that kind of response and you or you anticipate you're going to get that kind of response. That might be a signal that it's time for you to start, you know, quietly and strategically planning your exit, um, especially if you're a black or brown person, because it is my experience that those environments are really hard to change and it's not within your locus of control to really push those people to change. And so you just need to exit. Um, and, you know, your livelihood is important. I wouldn't tell you to do anything that you think is going to jeopardize that. Of course not. Um, but if you feel you're in a situation where you can't do it, then make some moves to get on out of there. On the other hand, if you are at an institution where you think it's safe to make a constructive challenge as it relates to how people are expecting you to show up in spaces, then you might use the intent impact principle to help you have this conversation. So for example, if someone says to you, the way you said that sounded, you know, very angry, right? That's a very common one for someone to say, you sound very angry. You might say to that person, you know, I understand the intent of you trying to tell me this because you think it's valuable information for me to have for whatever reason. But the impact that's landing for me and how I'm experiencing you in this moment is that this is microaggressive, um, particularly because I'm at an intersection of being a person of color um, and this is not okay, right? So you can lean on the intent versus impact principle to help you address microaggressions when they occur um, and challenge people to do some of that self-work um, if you identify as being in a marginalized um, category when these things happen. If you're a white person and you're listening to this thinking, well, what can I do as a white person to try to combat some of this? The key thing for you to keep in mind is that you have the privilege to, to make these challenges and in theory be a little more protected than the black or brown person trying to do it. Now, again, your livelihood is also on the line. I would not tell you to do anything that you think is going to ultimately jeopardize that. But if you have somewhat of a risk tolerance and you feel like you can make this challenge and you feel like doing so is not going to jeopardize your living um, or where you work, then try to make the challenge when it's happening. And if there's a meeting where someone says to a black person, like, you're rolling your eyes and it looks like you have an attitude. Again, this is something that black women hear constantly from white folks. You as the white person can say, you know, can we not make assumptions about what someone is thinking or what someone is feeling by their facial expression? We have no idea what's going on in somebody's mind. And it's very presumptuous to say that and not to really ask the question if someone has a concern. Um, so can we try not to do that? Um, you could say that out loud and show up in a substantive way as opposed to sitting there in silence and then going up to the black person after the meeting and being like, oh my God, I can't believe they did that, right? Like again, the intent of like trying to be there in solidarity with that person afterwards and trying to check in on them is there, but the impact is like, dude, why couldn't you have said that at the meeting <laughs> when they were attacking me for quote unquote rolling my eyes or something like that? 
So just keep those things in mind as you work through this. And remember, like I said, you do have to consider all the, the risk versus reward piece of it. But if you feel like you can make these types of challenges in these spaces, especially if you work for an institution that's like, we champion equity, hold them accountable to that. This is a great place to hold them accountable to that. Um, especially because since it's so, you know, status quo and how it feels and how it sounds and how we move and operate in these spaces, it can really go unnoticed by someone who just doesn't really get it or doesn't really know any better. And until you point it out to them, um, they're just not aware of it. And maybe that's a person who actually does want to make some substantive change. Um, so that's definitely something to consider. Um, and then you never know, you might get lucky. You may have a conversation with someone who does have influence and who does have power at the organization, especially if you've cultivated and built that relationship over time, you can talk to that person and be like, Hey, like I saw this, or I experienced this, or this person told me this, and maybe they're in a better position to really push to make some of the changes around this, um, that really caused black and brown people a lot of strife and grief and suffering and silence um, to be able to really question some of these norms and make space for people to show up as their true authentic selves without fear of punishment punishment for not being in close enough proximity to whiteness. Um, so those are the things I would encourage all of you to think about as you think about this particular aspect of the web of oppression. As always, the podcast and the YouTube videos come out every Friday, so make sure that you hit the subscribe button so that you don't miss anything um, in terms of new content that comes up. Um, and remember that, you know, this one is definitely a tough one um, because of its nature um, being so status quo. This can be a hard one to tackle um, when it comes to, you know, dismantling systems of white supremacy. Um, but if we focus on building relationships and gaining capital when we need it to use it, if we focus on operating within our locus of control to try to make change um, while protecting our peace and our pocketbooks at the same time, we may find ourselves in a position to make substantive change um, for black and brown people in these spaces so that they can truly show up how they need to and want to um, and feel a real sense of equity and belonging at the institutions where we live um, and work. 